This New America NYC event took place on Tuesday, July 28, 2015, and is titled Dishonesty, The Truth About Lies, a social cinema screening, and features Yael Melamed, Dan Ariely, Jonathan Haidt, and John Hockenberry. You know, since this really takes you into the kind of individual human nature of this question of dishonesty, I'm, I'm intrigued by how each of you think of how this scales. I mean, there are, you know, six billion people on the planet, and the incremental effect of, and you referred to it at one point by talking about the distance from money in electronic transactions and that sort of thing. What do you think the impact is of this behavior scaling up as people get more sophisticated in using, and we're seeing it already with uh, social media, what do, you, what do you think the brain's adaptive uh, mechanisms will be to either build dishonesty in or to prevent us from destroying ourselves? Well, the um, first thing to keep in mind is that we're very sensitive to things getting worse more so than things getting better. And we tend, bad is stronger than good. We notice how things are going downhill more than how things are going uphill. Uh, so yes, there are some trends that would suggest that there'll be more dishonesty. But at the same time, I, I'm just marvel at how nowadays, when I deal with companies or corporations, I don't worry as much as I did 20 years ago because there's really no way they can rip me off because I'll just crucify them. I'll, I'll, you know, we can all publicize it. So technology helps us in some ways. In some domains of life, I think uh, uh, things are getting more honest, more trustworthy. Um, I can't say overall whether things are getting, are, are we headed to a world with more dishonesty or are things getting better? So, so I think when you think about how you're being uh, screwed over, uh, I think you're absolutely right that it's a little harder for somebody to uh, sell you a lemon right now. Uh, but it's incredibly easy uh, for your uh, stockbroker uh, to shave much more money out of you over your lifetime than a few lemons. And, and the issue is that, that we don't see it, we don't pay much attention to it, and, and the cost is tremendous on society. Um, so and if that, I and think that's really the issue, because you can inject dishonesty into a moment when people don't really necessarily have the time to initiate a set of constraints where they go, stop. You know, for instance, insurance companies that say, D decline claims, decline claims until people just say, all right, fine, it's done. And they, they gain. It's dishonest for them to do that, but ultimately it's about your ability to fight that fight over a matter that's pennies to you pennies to them, but incrementally over, over time, it's billions of dollars. And, and, and sometimes it's not pennies. So, so I worry a lot about conflicts of interest, right? So, so conflicts of interest are these corrosive environments in which you pay people to see the world in, an, uh, in a biased way. And if you think about how we're designing the world, uh, we are designing the world with more conflicts of interest rather than less. So if how so? I think, for example, uh, the new healthcare program uh, has more conflicts of interest. So, so, so think that you're, you're in charge of a hospital and all of a sudden you can get penalized uh, if your percentage of uh, healing is lower. And of course, you can increase your percentage of healing by not taking sick people, or I mean, all kinds of other things. So think about what happened with the No Child Left Behind policy. We created this incentive program that basically got school teachers to give them tremendous incentives to exaggerate the scores of their, of their kids. So I think it, as, 
as we move forward and we put this big system in place, we're actually not eliminating conflicts of interest. We're building more of it into the system, and I, I think it's worse. So you're saying that attempts to measure outcomes in inevitably injects a conflict of interest into the system and that you can't objectively measure outcomes without producing incentives on the part of people to lie and cheat. So, so, so this is, this is uh, it, uh, I think in a complex dynamic system uh, where people have choices, it's very hard to get a system that is truly reflecting uh, incentives. And if we measure one thing, uh, and make it incredibly hard to reach that, that level in honest ways, we're going to create terrible incentives. So, so think about the American uh, healthcare system as an example. Um, we, we put stents in people, there's very little evidence that this really works. Uh, the Canadians uh, give people medications, uh, the success rate is about the same. Ours is just much more expensive. Uh, but we're very happy to pay people for procedures. So we created a system in which we pay people for procedures. What do we get? Lots of procedures. And, and, we, and we're moving to those things. Now you could say, well, you know, a stent is not uh, as expensive as uh, selling you a car, but the truth is it is very expensive. Is that and, dishonest if you're giving people what they want? So, so A, I think it's dishonest because we design a system where the doctors gets to look at you as a receptacle for stents. <laughs> Just a stent waiting to happen. I think, part, I think part of what's going on here is that we're letting economists do too much of the designing. And economists know about incentives, and they say, well, you know, we need to have these rewards and these punishments. Um, and I think what's exciting about behavioral economics is that we're getting more psychologists into this who will say, well, okay, sure, you can put it, here's the schedule of rewards and punishments, but now we know that if this is the schedule, people are gonna, they're gonna meet that target. And in part, there's gonna be some outrageous cheating, but mostly it's gonna be just stuff that, well, you can kind of justify. And then as we saw, it builds and it builds and it builds. Uh, so as with you know, the, the, the big scandal it was in Atlanta, you know, the No Child Left Behind, you know, the kids have to meet these marks and by golly, they meet them. And that happens with uh, pay for performance schemes in business. So what I'm saying is, Partly we've been going more towards systems that are based on information and measurement and probably we would both agree in general that's a good thing, but when they're designed by economists who don't put realistic models of human nature in, the result is predictably disastrous. Maybe that's your next book, Predict predictably yeah. <laughs> disastrous. But, but, but think, think about all of you, imagine that you were school uh, teachers in the Atlanta school system and you personally would get $400 more if the kids performed better but the whole school system was going to go under in a, in a big way with lack of funding if the schools do not perform well, right? It would be a little bit like the story of Walt, where he basically started cheating for the company, right? He was a company man and he was trying to, he had a, a task that was unsolvable in ethical ways and he was finding, he was taking tremendous personal risk to basically make it work for MCI, right? And, and wouldn't you do similar things for a good cause? Um, what did you find intriguing most about studying this subject and turning it into a film? Well, the, the personal stories are what inspired both of us. You know, Dan had done all this research, but then going out into the real world and finding that what Dan had found in his research is totally applicable 
in people's personal stories, but it's compounded. So, you know, you could isolate things in experiments, but then they compound with actual stories. So the intersection of science and storytelling was really fascinating and the power that came from that. How do you think? And Actually, if, if, I can, if I can add something that this, the interviews lasted about two to three hours. Uh, we started with people in kind of the, the first step of what they did and kind of went them through. And almost everybody thanked us at the end. There was something uh, incredible about this process by which these people were trying to understand how they got to where they got. And so most of the, the film of the interview come, came from like the third reel or something like that, late in the interviews. In other words, in other words most of the, the stuff of the, of the individuals telling their stories is late in the interview part. That they're kind uh, of justifying it, themselves towards the beginning and then they become much more... No, it depends. They were very complicated to cut. I mean, the, I would say one of the biggest challenges of the film was that we wanted to make the film... It, initially, it was called Slippery Slopes. And we wanted to look at the small steps that, that take you from, you know, a first transgression to the situation people were at at the end. But then we also wanted to tell lots of stories. So we couldn't spend the time with each person doing every step. And we tried to take what we thought was the most indicative of their um, trajectory. Uh, and, then we, and then we had many. So we had a big choice to make at a certain point, whether to go with one or two stories or many and, and try to show a similarity in pattern. It's their sense of clarity, though, as they tell the story that's most, most powerful. I mean, the circumstances sort of come out in various degrees of detail, depending on the stories, but it's just their, man, I really fucked up, you know, kind of feel that, that just really makes you, yeah, all right, I'm cheering for them, you know, even, even if you think what they did was egregious. I know everyone in the room wants to know if um, CNBC had signed off on the film uh, before Brian Williams got into his little problem. <laughs> Interesting story, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we finished the film, but I mean finished the film, final color correction, sound, everything on Monday. And on Wednesday, the Brian Williams story broke. Nice. And, and I called Dan, I'm like, you're never going to believe what happened. And I told him, he said, what's the big deal? It's the biggest laugh line of the film. And, um, hey, hey, what about my jokes? <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that one and then the one about only women ask the question. That's the other laugh line, yeah. Um, and I really, I, I was kind of apoplectic. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, they asked you to take it out? They did not ask us to take it out. I did... Oh, however, oh Jonathan, they might have, believed. However, <laughs> However, they did air a version. Uh, and they made it shorter. Yeah, gotcha. And but, guess. But to be fair, it's a, it's a lot shorter. It's, it's less than half the length of the film. So the CNBC version is 42 minutes. And our version is 89 minutes. Yeah. No, I, I understand. I, it's just interesting how those things play in real time. That's when, but when I did, I, we thought about it a lot. I mean, I thought, do, do we open the film and take it out? Do we wait? If there had been a better Mia culpa moment, I was really hoping that he would say, I really screwed up. And he's so screwed up the way he talked about screwing up. That, that we couldn't, you know, he would have been a really interesting tag at the end of the, the Marilee Jones story if it had reverted to him saying, I also messed up. It would have been a great end to that section. But I, I think you didn't even need it. I mean, I think it's just, wow. You just look at it and you go, boy, a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Now, the other thing that's interesting to me is that you choose 
examples that are economically significant kind of, I think that people can relate to the education example, I think that the basketball example, but uh, some of the really arresting moments on screen are George Tenet talking about torture and uh, what's his name talking about, uh, you know, nobody's being, yeah, no, well, Rumsfeld, yes, but anything of Rumsfeld is great. It's, it's cla yeah, Clapper talking about nobody is, is uh, experiencing surveillance. So it's George Tenet on, on uh, uh, torture and it's Clapper on uh, no surveillance. Um, what do you think comes into play in those instances? Because there, I'm wondering if your optimism is, is, is valid. Because I, I, I think in those conditions, you've got a kind of top-up situation where everyone has a stake in maybe covering it up. And it's only when someone at the highest level either blows the whistle or there's a fiasco like the Iraq invasion that it becomes, you know, it, it's, it falls apart. I don't think we would have known anything if they, if they hadn't found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's the only thing that unraveled the deal. Well, I think uh, the, the political world is its own world, and laws of human psychology don't necessarily apply there. <laughs> so, um, no, I, you know, emphasis so on the human. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, a few weeks ago, I did a, a panel discussion with Phil Zimbardo, his new film, The Stanford Prison Experiment. And one of the things that really struck me about the film—it's it's a wonderful film. If you have most of you study, if you took a psychology course, you know about the Stanford Prison Experiment, this fake prison in the basement. And one of the things that struck me is how amazingly quickly, like within hours it seems, everything becomes a lie. Like the, the way they'll talk to each other, the way the guards talk to the prisoners, and the prisoners have to lie. And then they'll be, I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre world. And so I think part of what we see here is that there are certain games that perfectly decent, normal people, they're put into this game, and very quickly to survive, you have to lie all the time. And especially if you're in national security. I mean, to ask the director of national security to tell me honestly now, you know, is, tell me about what America's doing. I mean, of course he's gonna lie and he's gonna feel justified doing it. He looked a little nervous, I must say. Uh, but I'm just saying, politics is, now you might say business is different too. And I think it is, but do, many of your people were talking about interpersonal lies. And then there were people who lied within a larger system. Do you think it's all the same psychology or do you think there's something about being in business or politics? So, so I think that they add uh, elements uh, I think businesses add an element of justification, uh, a theory of why this is actually okay. Uh, they add a social layer that helps you explain what you're doing in terms of uh, other people. So I don't think it's inherently different, but there's more layers of psychology. Um, I actually spent the morning uh, today with, uh, in the military uh, with lots of very uh, senior people in the army uh, thinking about these topics. Um, and they live in a very gray world, right? So, so one of the, the warning things about the movie is to say, if you live in a gray zone, odds are mistakes will happen. And, and they, they didn't know how to take to this idea because they say they have to live in a gray zone. They live in a very complex world that, that creating specific rules for what to do and what not to do are, are very difficult when you deal with... Um, enemies and people you don't trust that have different intentions and so on. So what can you reveal and what you can't reveal and why are the, what are the higher order principles? And um, it, it's, just, it's just incredibly complex. So I, I, I think the, the military has probably the most complex uh, set of uh, principles that come to, in conflict all the time, right? So, so if you think about what happens with honesty, is honesty is a really wonderful thing. Nobody says, oh, I don't want to be honest. 
but it comes against some other principles and then sometimes it gives it gives way. The question is, what is the hierarchy of principles? And for the well, is there a hierarchy? I mean, you, you get to a certain level of grayness, and you've created essentially a license to rationalize virtually anything, which is, I think, what you see with George Tenet, where you're saying that blue is actually green or black is actually white. And I mean, I'm just wondering if there's any way whatsoever in a gray world like that to enforce any sort of principle. And they do enforce some principles, which is like uh, protect each other. If you're in like a SWAT team or a, a SEAL Team 6, you protect each other. That's an inviolate principle. Um, there is a certain kind of hierarchy where you protect people who are all lying together in a, in a nice sort of Midwestern choir. Um, but, but the question of a principle that will protect values that we understand in sort of the civic public forum, values of pure honesty, disclosure, transparency, those are much harder. It seems to me, and, and, and it, it seems like there's not a way to do that. Well, there's not a principle. There's not like a hierarchy of principles where people say, well, this is my highest principle and I won't betray it. Now, that, now for some religious people, and you see this in the Stanford Prison Experiment, for some religious people, they're able to do that because there are certain principles that play a role in their life. But in general, it's not the principles that are going to affect your behavior. It's very local circumstances. It's what the person next to you is doing or saying. It's what is done around here. Um, I've, I've done some, also some uh, uh, consulting with the military in West Point, and what's interesting there is that they have an honor code, and, um, and their honor code requires them to turn each other in, but they're never going to do that, because what is totally dominant is the relations among the people. And I think that comes through in the movie is how incredibly social we are. We're not driven by principles. We're driven by ties to one person or this person, what, pers what people think of me. Um, that's something I just really loved about the movie is that a lot of behavioral economics is more about cognitive psychology and how much would you pay for this coffee mug. But this was so social. Let me, let me ask a question uh, about, that is a, a sort of a, uh, a naive evolutionary biology question. Um, is it possible that we're dealing with adaptive phenomena? Because you talk about in the, in the beginning of the film that the brain has this really powerful capability to go from, um, wow, I really suck at this test, but I'll lie and say that I'm a genius. Next step, I am a genius. Next step is I always tell people for the rest of my life that I'm a genius, and that becomes like on my resume. Um, this seems to me to be some sort of powerful adaptive mechanism that applies to a time that was unrelated to our industrial sort of social uh, world that we live in right now where there were much f far fewer people where that worked in the kinds of transactions that were, uh, you know, relevant, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, and that we are dealing with a clash of adaptive mechanisms that really go awry in the, the kinds of uh, situations that we find now, both in scale and, and in, in outcome. So, so how adaptive do you think this would be if everybody did this all the time? Not so much, right? It's, it's, you could say it's an adaptive mechanism if you're the only one who's doing it. But, but the thing about trust and honesty is that it's so important at the societal level, right, that if people start violating it, we all suffer. So you, you, I think it's, a, it's not so much it's adaptive, but it's selfishly useful in the short term. But if you think about biology as kind of creating something that is evolutionary stable in the long term, I don't think that's it. Well, but, but you know, evolution doesn't really care about society. Evolution works overwhelmingly on individuals. There are 
some cases of, in, of group selection. But I think to, to, to take the adaptive view of, of human social nature, you have to look at the incredibly intense game of social presentation. And we are the descendants of, of, of individuals, not just who were the fastest at outrunning bears and lions. That was part of it, but not a big part. We are especially the descendants of individuals who succeeded at the social game. They persuaded other people to cooperate with them. They persuaded other people to mate with them. They put on a good show. And if you think about the human mind as being this integrated information processor that tracks the truth, you'll never pass your psychology class. If you think about the mind as being composed of all these modules that were shaped by what worked in the ancestral environment, and impressing others, putting on a good show, was absolutely crucial and has always been, then I think some of this weird stuff that we do begins to make more sense. So many people will remember this, those split brain studies, Michael Gazzaniga's studies, and how people, when their corpus callosum is severed, one half of the brain does something, the other half of the brain can't know what was done, but yet it talks. It makes up a story on the fly. Yeah, I did that because it was kind of cold in here and that's why I got up or something. Uh, he called that the interpreter module. It's like there's a little commentator in your head giving a constant running commentary on why I just did what I did. And I don't really know why I did what I did, but the interpreter module suggests a story and I must be a real genius at test taking. Yeah, that's the ticket. And so I, I think an adapt taking an evolutionary adaptive view is the right way, but what you have to see is that the game we've always been playing is impressing other people. And so we're it's really play good by that. play over here on this side of the brain and color commentator over on this side. Well, play by play, I would say maybe the color commentator, and then there's a kind of a sense-making unit overall, like what is my life really about? And neither of them are really clued into what, what really caused you to act, but they're kind of cross-talking and they kind of, so, oh, what a tangled web we weave. We saw that throughout the movie, but what's so interesting is sometimes it's the person weaving it in their own head. It's not just that they're enmeshed in this giant mess. It's that they weave it more in their own head and get trapped in it. Self-deception, that's, right. that's Self the most powerful thing. Well, uh, Dan, Yael, and uh, John, thank you so much. It's been terrific. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.